I'm from the R, the I, the C, the H, the M, the O, the M, the D. That's my sentence. The R, the I, the C, the H, the M, the O, the M, the D. That's my sentence. The R, the I, the C, the H, the M, the O, the M, the D. That's my sentence. The R, the I, the C, the H, the M, the O, the M, the D. That's my sentence. Capital, we will start off with the reframe, followed by an interview with Melanin Muskogee and Mark Herrera. Stay tuned. the race capital reframe on the week of wednesday november 25th with me kalia harris and chelsea higgs wise and let's get right into local news chelsea okay so this week on eviction watch we have 190 unlawful detainers up in the court with the heaviest day being tuesday with 122 unlawful detainer cases being heard in just that one day and uh, unlawful retainers one more time for folks So that is the first step to being evicted for a tenant when your landlord is taking you into court and trying to start those first beginnings of the evictions process. And you're telling me that 190 are being heard this week and 122 on one day. Yes. And just a reminder that this week the courts are closed on Thursday and Friday. And last week there were 405 unlawful detainer cases heard, which means with my organizer math, that's 595 unlawful detainer cases in just the last two weeks alone. This is outrageous and it should scare everyone that this is what's happening in a two-week time period. This is what got people really paying attention to what was happening in Creighton Court last year with these types of numbers. So it's important to realize these evictions are still happening and keeping us top in the country for eviction rate. And there is legislation that is in place that should protect a lot of folks from the physical evictions, but that's not protecting anyone from the legal ramifications of what happens when you go through court. And we know that a lot of these folks don't even know that they're being heard in court. So we will continue the eviction watch coverage and keep an eye on these numbers so that our listeners can keep up. Other local news is that the Mayor's Reimagining Public Safety Task Force came out with their final report this week, Kalia. What did they reimagine, Chelsea? Well, they want you to reimagine what use of force looks like. In fact, they are saying that the use of force policies are sound. They are very compliant and are similar to what's happening across the country. So those do not need to be altered by any means. But what they are going to do is, quote, humanize, end quote, their de-escalation tactics. There's also some transfer of funds of, they are talking about divesting from the police department into a restorative justice office 
But we have to remember that this restorative justice office is also in collaboration with the prosecutor's office, as well as the Richmond Police Department. So this would still be money being put into these departments and institutions that we're saying we are trying to divest from. We're putting money from one police account into what sounds like a new police account with a different name. And Kalia, that's really important because it is almost impossible to see all the different avenues from which the Richmond Police Department is actually funded. That's one of our biggest requests is to have a transparent budget. So this would just be another way of police funding that is hidden within the overall Richmond City budget that we wouldn't see. So that's what's happening in the Mayor Reimagining Public Safety Task Force. You can continue to read more of that and their uh, recommendations and see what exactly Mayor LeVar Stoney will probably not do nor listen to as he hasn't with his other commission reports. Moving on, there's big news with legalization of marijuana in the Commonwealth of Virginia. That's happening. Hot diggity. Look at that. Um, it looks like there are talks about racial equity, social justice, and all types of comments. Even former Governor Terry McAuliffe had a piece in the Washington Post this week that sounded a lot like the narrative of Black women that have been putting forward this work for over a year specifically in the General Assembly. I will go ahead and say that the work of marijuana justice put this on the forefront and brought forward a JLARC study that focused specifically on racial equity, social equity, and the harms of marijuana prohibition right here in the Commonwealth. And without that study, many of the narratives and conversations for legalization that are happening and must happen for justice and equity would not have happened. And that's really important because literally no one in the legislature was talking about it. And then Senator Jennifer McClellan actually picked this up, got it passed. And now we see, unfortunately, men like Terry McAuliffe and Don Scott, who also wrote in this op-ed, um, not even mentioning the work of Black women, Black organizers, Black legislators, that we're talking about this in late 2019 and earlier this year when legalization was just not cool. But this is a conversation now. Even Delegate Lee Carter said this week that reparations must be included when they're talking about legalization, what that looks like. And again, that's part of marijuana justice's platform of repeal, repair, and reparations. We know that the drug war is just a tentacle of what the harm has happened since we were never given the proper reparations over emancipation and how that's hurt our other siblings across the diaspora, truly, that have been able to also be harmed by the United States. So with all that being said, we're talking about Jennifer McClellan, Terry McAuliffe, and Lee Carter. These just happen to also be part of the gang of folks that are running for governor right now here in the Virginia Commonwealth. I mean, I just feel like it's the Democratic primary all over again. Seems like everyone and their uncle has decided to drop the hottest mixtape that says, I am running for Virginia state governor. That's right. Delegate Lee Carter has also announced that he is exploring a run for governor or he absolutely is running. I think he is running for governor. All right. He is absolutely running for governor. Um, we have Terry McAuliffe, who is jumping back in because apparently he didn't want to run for president. So he's coming back for governor. We have Jennifer McClellan, the senator. We have Jennifer Carroll Foy, the delegate, two black women that are running. We also have somebody that's lieutenant governor that right now currently that is running for governor. That Kirk not... Cox from the GOP. The Kirk Cox, remember, is the person within an official picture. He was holding up the symbol for white supremacy. Everyone should go and Google that picture of Kirk Cox. And understand... Isn't Amanda Chase running? Speaking of. Amanda Chase is running for governor. 
we have some of the wildest players right now in the Commonwealth running for governor. So what's probably going to happen in the General Assembly because of this redistricting um, amendment that passed is that our primaries for these parties would normally be happening in June of 2021. The General Assembly is probably going to hear a bill that says because of redistricting, we will have the statewide primaries for governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general in June. And then the primaries for the delegate races and the senators will be held in August. What that means is these delegates and senators, even if they're running for statewide, if they lose, they will still be able to run for their current seat. Now they have to make these rules in the General Assembly, but this is what I would predict that we would see happening. So again, reminder of 2021 General Assembly was, um, will start January 14th. Really kicking off, we know an MLK Day, which is an interesting event this past year. This is a what we call a short General Assembly, which is 30 days. Um, normally we do petition and we see them extended by two weeks. We expect for Republicans not to want to do that. Um, really quickly, what we could see happen is that they end the session and then they open a special session and then stay open longer to get whatever done they feel like they need to. So that's just a rundown of what we might see with the General Assembly coming up. And like I said, it's really interesting that we talk about the General Assembly because another thing this week when we're talking about what happened this year at the General Assembly on Martin Luther King Day and what's happening now is the new laws that are banning guns at protests were not equally enforced at white supremacist rallies recently and the Richmond police justified this. So Kalia, this was this was really wild. And of course this law was patronized by Mayor Lavar Stoney back in the summer. Shocker. Now they say that this white supremacist group that organized didn't impact pedestrian traffic marching on sidewalks on the downtown. So didn't rise to the level of an event needing a permit. But the really interesting part to me Kalia was their choice of wording. And by they, I mean the Richmond Police Department. And they said, quote, this is because the conduct of the gathering did not meet the threshold for a violation of the city ordinance prohibiting firearms during permitted events or events that would otherwise require a permit, end quote. So it's the conduct of the gathering. So they are like the judge and the jury on whose conduct is permittable or not. It's the most subjective thing I've ever heard. And of course, I'm not shocked that the police didn't think the conduct of white nationalists marching on the Capitol with large magazines carrying their huge guns, that that was conduct that was concerning because we know that police officers and the Klan, they go hand in hand. So I'm not shocked about that. It's just like, how is our city council okay with the fact that a law that they just passed is being enforced this inequitably? It speaks poorly on their part. Well, and it also looks to maybe their intention, probably their intention. Historically, this has always been used against and, and inequitably enforced against Black protesters and people protesting for Black lives. And they were told that, they knew that, and they still enacted it. And look, it's working just as designed. And I mean, this is any law that criminalizes behavior, and particularly gun laws that are always going to send more Black and brown people through the criminal justice system. So they knew that, like you said, going in, the evidence speaks very much to it. They decided willingly to add another obstacle for Black folks 
This is truly the former capital of the Confederacy. Welcome. Well, moving out of the capital of the Confederacy tells into the national stage, I thought we would start off with our COVID-19 watch. Oh, man. (laughs) So nationally, there's 12.6 million cases of COVID-19 with 269,000 people dead. And in Virginia, we have 223,582 total cases and 3,979 deaths, which means we are less than 100 deaths away from 4,000 deaths in Virginia from this virus. And as this is all going down, Chels, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, known as the CDC, has recommended that people stay at home this holiday season and enjoy their dry turkey amongst the people that are in their household. Not their dry turkey. Yes. And despite this, folks are so pressed to eat those turkeys with folks outside of their household that over 3 million people this last weekend traveled by air, according to the TSA. And that's the largest numbers that we have seen since last March. Oh, so people are still jumping on these flights and catching flights. Is that you, listener? Are you part of these people? Are you part of the problem? We all got to stop and reflect. Yes. And so we know that the spread is going to go up. It's actually already spiking up. And that does not account for folks that are traveling by Amtrak, by car. So we'll really have to see. But I advise folks to, you know, be careful. And we have seen thousands of prosecutors across the nation dropping charges against protesters from these Black Lives Matter protests this summer. Okay. Yes, we love a hashtag drop the charges. Free them all. The prosecutors have declined to pursue many of the cases because they concluded that the protesters, shocker, were exercising their basic civil rights. Wow. What? What do you mean? Civil rights. (laughs) Demonstrators, First Amendment, this sounds very new. And we know that even here in Virginia, many cases against protesters have been dismissed and the people are continuing to demand that all charges against all protesters are dropped. So this tactic that they have of mass arresting and charging people is clearly, we're not pretending when we say that the charges need to be dropped. It's a thing that needs to happen all across the nation. It's just truly for intimidation to keep us out of the streets and stop practicing our First Amendment rights. Exactly. And out of Iowa, some news from the Tyson's Food Company. Tyson's has suspended managers for betting on how many employees would get sick from COVID-19. According to local reporting, Tyson has faced a backlash over recently amended wrongful death lawsuits in which the plaintiff's lawyers allege that the Waterloo plant manager Tom Hart organized a cash buy-in, winner-take-all betting pool for supervisors and managers to wager on how many employees would test positive for the virus. Hart allegedly organized the pool last spring as the virus spread through the plant, ultimately infecting more than a thousand of its 2,800 workers and killing at least six, sending many to the hospital. The outbreak eventually tore into the larger community. This is outrageous. And again, this is where most people are getting their food and their chicken. So y'all, we got to be safe and conscious. 
and protect the workers. We know that a lot of workers are undocumented and to know that lives are just being bet on as a game. Like I know that this virus is cruel, but we really need to understand just how cruel it is that people are acting. And it sounds like exactly what's happening in in the farm workers world right now as well. So moving on with national news, we have to say that even as he is still saying that the election results are contested, 45 has not formally conceded, but his administration is allowing the Biden campaign to gain access to over $7 million in transition funds, office space, and cabinet briefings. There's still no word on where the millions of dollars in crowdsourced funding from the Biden-Harris campaign will go, or if that will be refunded to donors. I know that really caught me off guard that they're starting a basic GoFundMe, not GoFundMe, but a campaign for getting our money and coin for this transition. Y'all better fight for that fund and make it pass. Come on over. And God forbid we put a cash app out. Biden was asking folks to fund. He said, let me hold it $5. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question, though. Are we going to get our, are y'all going to get your coins back? Y'all ain't got my coins, but we'll see about that. And speaking of Biden, he is currently busy appointing a cabinet full of ops. <laughs> so we have a white Cuban to Homeland Security. We have John Kerry on some special envoy for the climate. And Rahm Emanuel is being considered for the Secretary of Transportation, even though we know that our comrades in Chicago have uncovered that he helped to cover up the murder of Laquan McDonald in 2014. And even this week, AOC spoke out about this. So it's just really just disgusting that he would even consider Rahm Emanuel for a post at all. Right. No, this is, and this is, again, this reaching across the aisle conversation that we're having to now just be complicit with, that we have to encourage people that were for Biden to say, okay, this is the time to hold folks accountable. Like, what does that even look like? And no one asked him to reach across anybody's aisle. (laughs) It truly wasn't what the people were asking for, truly. (laughs) No one, no one asked y'all to do this. You know, we have to really continue to understand what's happening on the ground as people are practicing their First Amendment rights. And even though charges are being dropped against protesters, come to find out that protesters are losing their lives and struggling through trauma in other ways. This week, we found out that Hamza Travis Nagdi, leader of Breonna Taylor protest in Louisville, Kentucky, was killed after being struck by multiple bullets during a suspected carjacking, according to reports. Travis was known for demanding justice for Breonna Taylor and Black lives and could be found in the streets of Kentucky fighting for Black life. This is just one of these moments we had to realize and and really take into account the experiences that people are feeling and living through on the ground. Yeah, and we know that back in the days of Ferguson uprisings, lots of organizers went missing, were killed, and so we must keep each other safe as we're out here in these streets. Moving into international news, following up on coverage out of Nigeria, the army has finally admitted that there was, in fact, use of live bullet rounds on anti-police protesters on the Lekki Toll Bridge. Reports say that the army was given both live and blank bullets. My goodness. Yeah, and there was over 10 people killed during that incident. Live and blank bullets. Just the -the up-in-the-airness of it all is raging violence. 
And coming out of Guatemala, there are uprisings against corruption and the budget that have been renewed as indigenous people all over the country are rising up. The 2021 budget was passed in secret and included lots of money for legislators for stuff like food, out, all types of stuff, Chels. And they cut the funding for the country's COVID-19 budget. The vice president of the country has stepped down. He has suggested that the president do the same and has accused him of stealing a lot of money. The Congress building was set on fire. Protests are continuing throughout the next week. And I've gotten word from my comrades on the ground in Guatemala that a police officer has killed a young girl and a lawyer during the protests. So we're sending all of the solidaridad to all of our indigenous people fighting for liberation all over the world. Adelante. Adelante. That is all for our Race Capital Reframe today. Thank you so much for reporting with me this morning, Kalia. And now we are turning over to our interview with Melanin Miskogi and Mark Herrera, where we're going to talk about indigenous people fighting for liberation, abolition, and just collective solidarity. Tune in. question for you is, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. Um, so my name is Amber. Uh, I go by Melanin Muskogee online. So uh, usually Twitter and Instagram is kind of where I like kick it. I, I want to introduce myself um, in my language. So Hesche Amber Chehochefkados, Ishti Muskogee Ome, Ishti Leshti Ome, Ishti Chari Ome. And I pretty much just said, hi, my name is Amber. I am Muskogee. Also, I'm Black and I am a Native person. And so I identify as Afro-Indigenous. On my paternal side um, is my Afro-Indigeneity. And on my mother's side, um, I'm a proud Black woman. Um, and I'm, other than Muskogee, uh, I'm also of Cherokee, Quapaw, Shawnee, and Uchi descent. And so I really like to make sure I bring those ancestors along with me when I'm introducing myself, even though I'm not enrolled um, as a citizen in any of those nations. Um, and I think like concisely what I do online is really speak to Afro-Indigeneity, like affirming Black Natives, affirming the idea that Black folks are, can be, and are Indigenous in a global context, like thinking about African peoples are Indigenous to Africa. Um, and I really like to speak to the idea that there's intersectionality in our struggles as Black and Native folks, um, that we have a mutual oppressor. And if we're not paying attention to that and we're focusing on our lateral violence, we'll forget what we're actually trying to achieve, which is an authentic Black liberated future and an authentic sovereign future for Indigenous peoples. So a lot of my work is around uh, 
rooting anti-Blackness and anti-indigeneity and thinking about those in the context of global Black liberation and global Indigenous sovereignty. Yes, well, welcome onto our platform because we are pro-Black, pro-Indigenous, and we love liberation. Yes, that sounds good. (laughs) And Mark, I see you popped in. What's up, cuz? Small world, yo. (laughs) So, Mark, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? John Tomo, Jehov Jeffke, Mark Herrera. Hello. I said hello, and my name is Mark Herrera in the Miksuki language. I'm a Florida Seminole on my mom's side, and I'm, I have YU ancestry on my father's side. I'm originally from the East Coast, but currently I live in Portland, Oregon. I currently intern for the Native American Arts and Cultures Foundation currently continuing my education through the University of Oklahoma and their Indigenous Peoples Law Program. And so a lot of my work is supporting other Native organizations, but also educating myself in a system that was designed to eradicate us, to combat white supremacy every day through my existence. And my existence, along with Amber's, is a testament that Black liberation supports Indigenous sovereignty, and so I try to live that every day. Well, welcome y'all to the show. Race Capital, we're here in Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. We oftentimes like to call it the fallen capital of the Confederacy because we've had quite a few of those Confederate statues fall just this last few months. This week, we just wanted to talk and center Afro-Indigeneity and Black liberation and have some voices on to just chat about what that means for us. I'm just really excited to be able to connect what so many people are now energized around talking about to just the everyday foundation movement of your narratives and that you all have been putting in the work in. So I'd love to hear a little bit about the critical role of solidarity within our movements for total liberation. And what does that mean to each of you? So I think this, the summer and just with COVID and with George Floyd, and I think that it has been a reminder that people have been doing this work already, right? Like I, I want to be clear that any work that I'm doing or any work that I'm doing in community with others is work that is on the shoulders um, or next to other folks who have been doing this work since this colonial project has existed, right? I think that in a lot of ways, I found a voice, you know, during this. I think a lot of us are at home and due to COVID, a lot of us are not distracted in a lot of ways about, you know, around capitalism, racial capitalism. And so we're having these conversations that oftentimes haven't happened across the way regularly, but now we are speaking to each other across, you know, across the aisle, right? But I, I want to be sure to note that like Black and Indigenous peoples have been working together since the start of this project, right? We have always been a threat to this system. And that's why there's been like intentional use of our peoples as lateral harm against one another, as trauma against one another, whether that be like, you know, using, um, slavery or enslavement in the five civilized tribes or using black 
soldiers in the West to remove folks off, you know, native folks off their land, right? There, there's been this intentionality around keeping black and indigenous peoples separate here in the context of the US and I'm sure in other parts of the world. But I feel like for me, this summer and this, you know, this year really has been about us making sure like our narratives are including like the global projects of white supremacy and settler colonialism and racial capitalism. Because I think that I'm starting to have a more full understanding of how these projects have been like franchised around the world, how they've been intentionally used around the world to keep oppressed folks looking at each other versus looking at a system that's meant to subjugate us or use us as utility or commodify our bodies or see us as transactional, right? So I think in a lot of ways, this year has grounded me in some of my ideas. I'm learning, I'm always learning. I feel like online, it's about being in community and listening to what other people are doing and valuing that. Because I think in a lot of ways we've learned to like value academia or we've learned value whiteness and whiteness as currency and therefore as the authority when all along we've been our own authorities, right? And we haven't had to be, I don't think we have to be perfect in like navigating how we get out of these systems. We just need to keep trying to keep running. And so I think that's what it's meant for me this summer is learning to listen to our global Black voices, global Indigenous voices, and making sure that in any of our liberation movements, our struggle movements, that we're seeing one another, that we're listening to one another, and that we're not so focused on the trauma, not necessarily erasing it or pretending it doesn't exist, but contextualizing it under these three frameworks of white supremacy, settler colonialism, and racial predatory capitalism. Mm, yes. So Mark, I mean, what you got to say about <laughs> after that? I'm sitting here Man, taking notes. Amber always brings the heat. You know what I'm saying? She's a, she's a rock in my life education, you know, right? We're always done with school. There's always an end journey towards academia we're always learning in life so i appreciate amber just always dropping the fire and i'll take a stab at it but for me uh, solidarity within the current movements for total liberation it means strength simply for me because my grandma used to say a bundle of sticks is stronger than a, a lone stick and that's true with people you know, if you work with different groups, those different groups can talk within their communities and sort of shift the narrative within their homes versus an outsider coming to another outside community and trying to not force their beliefs, but try to make them persuade them to see their way. It's not going to be as effective. Um, an example of this is I was a community endorsee for the drug decriminalization and addiction treatment initiative in Oregon this year. It's also known as Measure 110. Uh, <laughs> it's going around social media that, you know, Oregon decriminalize all drugs, right? But that piece of legislation does so much more for people that people take the time out and read it. It's more than just decriminalizing small portions of drugs that are for personal use. Um, but it also sets up a fund for, you know, treatment centers. And right now we're, you know, trying to implement it in the best way so that the community is 
involved in a meaningful manner. But I bring it up to show an example to the listeners out there. When we were working on that ballot measure, we didn't just focus on people of color. Um, We also focused on rural Oregonians. These are people that probably I won't, I don't have anything in common with. I'm not from Oregon. I'm from Miami, Florida, but our communities are swallowed by the criminal system put into place. And instead of treating people who have a problem, maybe addicted to opioids, they're not treating them as victims, they're treating them as criminals. And so that was my firsthand experience of what true solidarity meant, because you're in a Zoom call with people that are farmers, are nurses, mental health counselors, tribal councilmen, um, community organizers, grassroots organizers, so on and so forth. So solidarity is a bit bigger than demographics. It's It takes an account of class, gender, sexual orientation. It really means that everybody has space at the table. A helping hand is better to grab onto than a closed fist. And I think that's what makes a movement effective is when all hands are on deck and everybody is brought up at the same time instead of staggered, which is something that we've seen in the civil rights movement under the helm of MLK. That narrative wasn't necessarily centered about Black trans people. We aren't in the 60s anymore, and everyone should have a voice at the table so that we can all be brought up for liberation at the same time. So long story short, solidarity means strength in numbers. It means um, effectiveness, truly. If solidarity is a true thing and it comes out of love and peace, movements can be successful and have been successful. I think um, if you want to throw solidarity, the first baby step is to understand what land you're on and pronouncing the name right. If you can say Daenerys Targaryen, you can say Kalapuya, you can say Chinook, you can say Choctaw, you can say Muscogee. Please pronounce the tribal names right to yes. the best of your ability. Yes. Um, that's the first step. First step is knowing, you know. It's not, yeah, and I and I want people to know that indigenous people are still here and we're not a monolith, that there are over 500 and something tribes just in the U.S. And I want people to know that um, we are sovereign indigenous n- nations with different cultural ideas and epistemologies. And it's important to understand that Native folks still exist and that if you are, if you say that you're Native, it's important to respect tribal sovereignty and indigenous sovereignty. And if you're not doing that, then you are disrespecting um, indigenous people. So I just wanna make sure people know that like saying you're indigenous, there, there's more to it than that. So please respect tribal sovereignty and indigenous sovereignty if you're choosing to identify or reconnecting to your peoples. This episode was recorded in so-called Richmond 
the fallen capital of the Confederacy and Powhatan lands, tilled by the blood, sweat, and tears of the indigenous and African ancestors that came before us. You are listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio, with me, Kalia. And Chelsea. And we are in conversation with Melanin Muskogee and Mark Herrera. Stay tuned. How are you all talked about solidarity, practicing that right now in this time of COVID? And it sounds like you're, you're doing that in so many ways with so many important issues. What are some of the ways that you all have been able to do that? I think for me, like I said before, I'm not from Oregon. You know, my tribe, my people are in South Florida majority. For me, whenever I move into a space, uh, shout out to Howard University. I used to live in D.C., 2019 alum. But wherever I go, I try to learn about the obstacles and problems that the local indigenous populations face. So that way I know if I can plug myself into that work or help in any way or make myself aware of their their struggles. For me, it shows intertribal solidarity. You know, as indigenous people, our universes are the way we see our world is where we're from. To impose my own world outlook in a new area, that would be disrespectful. So I try to engage with the local community here. Shout out to the Grand Ron community. They're one of the local tribes in the area. Shout out to Warm Springs. Being Black and Indigenous, right? Like our whole existence is sometimes a solidarity of, out of love or different circumstances, right? But for me, it was a, a solidarity movement out of love when my parents got together. And I was fortunate enough where I didn't have to choose to be Black or Native. That decision was imposed by outside people of my community. The hardest thing is to maintain that balance, right? To be Black, to recognize your Blackness and recognize your indigeneity, because sometimes the problems seem bigger than the other, depending on the situation. And for me, what I do is I try to join different organizations, like I'm the interim chair for the political action committee at the NAACP here in Portland. But I also engage with on the ground organizers, pretty much how I show solidarity right now. And also just learning more, reading books, um, gaining new knowledge, you know, you don't have to be there, you know, on the streets, you can just get a book from your local bookstore, black owned bookstore, native owned bookstore, you know, and just keep learning. So that way you have a basic knowledge of whatever community that you're interested in learning about. Yeah, there are certain nuances that you won't get unless you're really interacting with the community. I mean, my first thing was going to be learning. Like, I feel like this whole time I've been learning through books, like I've been reading a ton and realizing like the ancestors have already done a lot of this work. We can learn so much from their resistance. You know, like Mark said, we are products of that resistance, right? We are the personification of that um, resistance. And so knowing that we don't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel, um, I've just been spending a lot of time just reading. I'm currently in the middle of uh, the Indigenous People's History of the U.S., which is a really intense book. <laughs> and I've had to put it down a couple of times. 
um, but then just also reading about um, the history of Black and Native solidarity. So I can learn about what our people have been doing, the threat that we have been to this system from the beginning, which makes me really proud, right? You know, also like learning from my grandmother, that one-on-one knowledge has been empowering the work that I'm trying to do. I think I would say that I'm a thinker in a lot of ways. Like I have a lot of ideas. And so I try to like share what I'm thinking, but I really want those ideas to be informed. So reading is has been huge for me. I will also say, so Mark and I both are in Portland on Kalapuya land, and uh, we work together on some projects this summer with organizations, you know, who are trying to speak to uh, the intersectionality of Blackness and indigeneity. So I feel like I've been doing a lot of work around that this summer. And also, I think supporting organizations and individuals who are doing the on-the-ground work, because I think that sometimes we think we have to do everything, like we have to be involved in everything. And in a lot of times we get our attention gets split in so many directions. So in a lot of ways, I've had to learn how to say no, or I can't, or that's not my area of expertise or something that I even know enough about. Uplifting other folks who are doing this work, who might be doing it different than I am, but really trying to stay in community is the best way that I've learned to be in solidarity and just really learning from what our ancestors have already done. Like the reason why white supremacy and settler colonialism haven't been able to be fully realized is because there's always been resistance. And so I'm learning where my place is in resistance. And so I don't know quite yet, but I think that having conversations has been a huge part of how I can be in solidarity because I'm learning from other folks. So when I'm online sharing ideas, I'm hoping other people will participate. But I'm also like guarding my own soul and guarding my own mind because, you know, the internet can be a very awful place sometimes. So sometimes solidarity looks like blocking folks, you know, and being like, I'm just not, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go over here with these people who are focused on doing the work. If I'm honest, I'll say, I don't know quite where my place is, but I'm, I'm, I'm learning and I'm open to the possibility that I'm wrong about the stuff. Even I come to conclusions, you know, with, so yeah. So on this conversation of liberation here at Race Capital, we talk a lot about abolition of prisons, policing, you know, the whole white supremacist system. How does the movement for abolition of policing intersect with your work, if it does? And if so, how? So I usually tell people I'm a budding abolitionist, and that means that I'm still learning, right? I'm still being informed about, I understand the history of policing and how policing was meant to um, protect property and that property being Black folks, right? We were commodities, we were utility. I think how we get to liberation is being in community. And oftentimes the police don't represent community. They represent an outside force who is meant to protect property. And um, I think that all the work we do is that, right? We are trying to do, we don't need people to police us. We don't need people to tell us about our own liberation. We don't need people to lock us up when we resist, right? And so I think All of the work we do is about dismantling that hierarchy, which uses police to keep that hierarchy in its place. Um, So I think that I have been learning from Dr. Ruth. She's an abolitionist and she's amazing. I've been Wilson Gilmore. Yes, Ruth Wilson. Oh my gosh, I've been watching some of her like 
um, YouTube, I think on YouTube and just reading some of her articles and just have been really informed about like even how she's taken that globally. I think that that's been a part of my learning is to understand how this intersects with the work that we do when we we're trying to speak to Black liberation. I think there can be no Black liberation without without abolishing the police. I honestly don't think so. I think that we are capable of doing community work. A lot of our problems are in response to what's been happening to us as oppressed folks. And so addiction, crime, all these things are products of this system. They're products of this, this awful, like, I don't even know what other word to use other than like this awful system. Um, and, you know, I like to say that where we are now is not our inheritance, right? We didn't, we didn't create this. We are enduring what was put on us. And so there can be no Black liberation. There can be no Indigenous sovereignty without the abolition of police, without the abolition of the like corporal state, of this judicial system that has, its intention is to not even criminalize our acts, but criminalize who we are as people, like our very existence. And so without the abolition of that notion, that idea, you can't reform that. It needs to be done away with, right? So I think I'm growing into my own ideas. But again, it's the ancestors who have already done this work. It's the people who come before us have already done this work. And I feel like I'm just learning what they've, what they've been doing. So that's where I'm at on it. Mark? <laughs> yeah, I think um, my current work is not about abolishing, abolishing the police per se, but abolishing the incentive of being policed. And so what that means is I'm currently working with a legislator. We're looking at possibly changing the 13th Amendment, actually really taking a look at it, because as we all know, it does abolish slavery, but it turns it into something else because there's an exception clause. If you look at the 13th Amendment, it says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime. And what does that lead to? It leads us to a present day of the United States having the biggest prison population, and yet we tout ourselves as being home of the free. It leads to all sorts of problems in our own households. Like many of us own IKEA furniture that unfortunately uses U.S. prison labor. The French fries you eat are probably picked from a prisoner in Idaho. So there's a lot of things that incentivize sort of like this capitalization on race to a testament of your podcast name, our race does have capital. And unfortunately, that capital is used in a very nefarious way. And that is seen through a metamorphosis of what slavery was in the 1860s to what slavery is now. And so my work tries to abolish the incentives of the policing of our bodies, of our race, of our people, and I think that's that's the roots of things. Like if there was no money in sending black and brown folks to prison, we probably wouldn't have that many struggles or problems with our current system. But our current system is a neo-plantation system and the plantations manifest itself in correctional facilities. And it's one of the most disgusting things, and we all partake in it, no matter if you're white and black, because 
You don't know the products, where they're coming from. And privately traded companies are very good at hiding where their manufacturers are. Um, so that information is not privy to the public as easy as, you know, oh, looking up the presence of the United States, you know. Yeah, take the incentive away from policing. It's going to be a longer fight, but I would argue it's a little bit more tangible. Yeah, and we definitely talk a lot here about how one of the first steps to being an abolitionist is acknowledging that slavery never ended in the U.S. And having that orientation, how that really just changes and shifts our paradigm and really the energy to our work. So thank y'all so much for sharing. Here on Race Capital, we do not like to let our guests get out without asking them our favorite question, what's your privilege? So we would like to ask you both, what's your privilege and how do you use it to dismantle white supremacy? Um, so I think that I have a lot of intersectional privileges. Um, I will say that I am a cis, straight, able-bodied um, woman. And um, I will also say that I have a college degree. Uh, I will say that, um, you know, I am partnered with someone who makes a lot of money. So we have capital. Um, I'm in the U.S., you know, what is now known as the U.S. And I think as an indigenous person, I'm also enrolled in a tribe which carries a lot of currency and a lot of privilege. I'm sure there are other um, privileges that I need to reconcile, but those are the ones that really st um, stick out. We live in a time where we have these platforms, you know, so I think about my Afro-Indigenous relatives whose indigeneity may have not even been recognized, um, whose Blackness, you know, that one drop discredited them, anything they had to say, or, you know, they may have had to pass. But I, you know, I have this platform where I'm allowed to speak directly to white supremacy and like directly to these levels of oppression without worrying about like, am I going to get arrested? I mean, people can cancel me, That that's true. But I feel like I take into consideration what my ancestors didn't have, even the possibility, right? You know, I'm not an enslaved person. Um, I'm not, I haven't been forced to live on my reservation. In a, I'm an urban indigenous person. And so um, I think there's some aspects of privileges to those things. So, you know, I try to use my voice even when sometimes I want to hide and run and be like, okay, I'm done with it. Like I've said what I need to say. And even in a lot of ways, I feel like I've been doing that the last couple of days where I'm just like, I'm just going to disappear. But I try, I try to remember that I have a responsibility to my ancestors and to my relatives and to my contemporaries, as well as the future generations to dismantle these systems that have caused us so much harm and so much trauma for the last generations. So that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, my privilege would be, of course, I am a male. I'm a cisgender male. So my gender identity isn't necessarily attacked on a daily basis as a trans person would be, or a non-binary person would be, you know. Uh, I am educated. I'm privileged enough to be educated at the Mecca, you know. There's a difference between being educated at Howard University, the institution, and the Mecca. Those are two different factories. I am privileged to be Black and Native because 
it allows me to speak to both of my existences and hold them accountable, especially when interacting with more toxic members of both communities. And I'm just going to lay it out there. You know, I'm talking to hoteps and I'm talking to anti-Black natives. And there's a lot of them. And it seems like there's a growing number of them because education is being warped and facts are being mislabeled. And I have that privilege to try to keep hoteps in check, but also keep anti-Black natives in check. And for those of you who are listening, they don't know what a hotep is, is basically a, a person of African or African-American descent that views their world uh, observations through a black supremacy lens. And they use certain pieces of history and interpret it as such, which causes the erasure of indigenous people and also the plight of our ancestors that were taken from Africa. So not to go too in-depth, one of their beliefs is Black people, people of African descent, were here first and here always. And the natives you see now are basically fake. And they have different theories on how we got to this place or how we came to be. But that is the central gist of it. And so when I come into the conversation um, it basically breaks their worldview because then in their philosophy I shouldn't exist and so when they're speaking about their views what they're also doing is denying my blackness that was ripped out of what is now known as Senegal you know my great 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 grandparents were fishermen on the coast and I have that privilege as a black man to know where my people come from Africa. A lot of my best friends don't know where their people come from. And I have that privilege. And then in terms of engaging with like anti-Black natives, you have to sort of be native to understand the dynamics of what that really means, because it is a byproduct of white supremacy. White supremacy is so damaging and so poisonous to the mind that it causes people to reiterate histories, stories, cultures, so it benefits their worldview. Thank you again for just doing the work, especially with the hoteps, just as a, a Black woman, I just want to say thank you for some of that own personal work. But um, Yeah, I appreciate Mark too, because I try to do that battle. And sometimes I'm just like, I don't have time. Again, sometimes you just got to block and keep doing the work. You know, something that I've heard both of you really just say is that we need to look to benefiting all of us in a solidarity movement. And I want to thank you both for being able to come on today. And we want to make sure that people can follow both of your work. So Mark, we can start with you just, again, telling people your name, your names, and how to follow you and support your work that you have going on right now as you continue to dismantle white supremacy out there. Yeah, no problem. My name is Mark Herrera. You can find me on Instagram at markanthony195. That's spelled M-A-R-K-A-N-T-H-O-N-Y. The number is 195. And, um, a little blurb about our future work and Amber is going to be involved in this. I'm on the verge of creating a nonprofit to, for the sole basis for now 
of buying land and donating it back to tribes because I personally believe that tribes shouldn't be using their own money to pay for their land, which was stolen. And so, yeah, if you're interested on that journey, keep a lookout for a website drop and future announcements from either Amber or me. Um, so I, um, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter um, at Melanin Muskogee um, and Muskogee is um, spelled the way we spell it in our, um, in our tribe. So M-V as in Victor, S-K-O-K-E. So Melanin Muskogee. Um, and yeah, I'm partnering with Mark doing some of this work, um, this actual land back work. So I'm looking forward to us getting that out there. So thanks for having us. This has been really great. I so appreciate you, both of you reaching out to, to us so that we can have this conversation. Yep. And we have a third, Naomi Isaac, who's just out right now, but they're usually here part of the team. So we'll make sure we'll have you all back sometime. You can meet the full team. But thank you again for both of you all being here. Thank you for listening to Race Capital. The last thing I did want to say is I know that Neonce is going to love this land back conversation. So we'll definitely have to have you all back here. And that's all for today, folks. Thank you for listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. And we'll see y'all next week. Here's some biggie because the only Christopher that we acknowledge is Wallace.